Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 on the podcast or streaming online. I'm Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person to talk through the stories and songs that have defined their life. I'm coming to you from the FBI studio in Redfern and my guest is joining me remotely today. Each of us are coming to you from unceded Gadigal land, so I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It's a bit of a shame that radio is an audio medium because today I'm joined by a pretty remarkable visual artist. Kate Scarterfield is a research-driven, interdisciplinary and experimental artist. Her practice spans textiles, sculpture, installation and video to explore the relationships between the body, sight and space. Kate also holds a PhD at the University of Sydney and is the co-director of the Material Ecologies Design Lab at the University of Technology, Sydney. So we have a lot to get through today. Kate Scarterfield, thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box. Thank you for having me, Mia. So all the way up until one o'clock today, we're going to look pretty closely at your practice and at the different moments in your life that have informed you as an artist now. I guess first, because this is radio, I want to get into what your art currently looks like and maybe what someone standing before a Kate Scarterfield piece of art would see. Can you explain that to me? Oh, wow. Right now it looks like... Uh, a number of different things. Um, It looks like uh, kinetic and adaptable textiles. Uh, It also looks like large sculptural uh, work and installations uh, using materials like algae, biomass and oyster shell waste. It looks like pieces of writing, uh, um, journal articles. Uh, It looks like yeah, lots and lots of different materials um, and different pieces of kind of conceptual and material information being choreographed and laced together. That might be a bit vague. <laughs> Sorry. No, I want to dig into that because I think when you describe your practice, it inevitably is a conversation about the materials that you're using. Why is that? Why is that? I think... I kind of, I come to thinking about the materials I'm using and I'm engaging with a lot because so much of my work has always been research driven and conceptually underpinned, but it's also about this kind of constant material driven investigation. So it's about trying to understand what materials are, what they can do, and then in turn being an artist, what they can come to mean. Um, through different types of formal compositions and different types of choreographies. I've been working for a while now with a lot of repurposed textiles. So I work with sails, um, different spinnakers, um, storm sails, uh, also parachutes. You know, they're these kind of big unruly swathes of nylon, which are completely synthetic, fossil-derived uh, materials and there's there's sort of multiple layers to why I work with those materials but they kind of have these ingrained histories and these embedded stories in them. And when you talk about the 
embedded histories and stories that come with those materials. Are you talking about history in general or is there something personal in those as well? Um, I think being an artist, there's always something personal. There's always a choice I think artists can make to reveal or conceal as much of that as they like. I talk a little bit about that, definitely. I, I'm, I grew up in Sydney on, on Gadigal country and I spent a lot of time on the water um, and I learned to sail as a kid. And so sails have this kind of, you know, they're a material and they're an object that have a very kind of personal resonance with me as well. Their, their form and their shape and their colour is something that, yeah, definitely has a kind of a strong personal connection. Throughout the show today, I, I want to look at your life growing up in Sydney and how you've arrived at this kind of art making. But first, I want to jump into a song by PJ Harvey. Why did you pick this one? This is hard. I, I picked this. <laughs> I could have picked so many PJ Harvey songs, but I picked The Last Living Rose because it is a song that reminds me of a lot of the travel that I have done in the last sort of 10, nearly 15 years and the residencies I've been able to undertake. I've been in Paris and I've been in Mexico and I've been in New Delhi and, yeah, just what that has given my practice, um, the way that I see the world, the way that then I make art in response to that. And it's also a song that reminds me of how much I've tried to love London and I just can't. Um, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time there and it's just, it's not my city. So I, yeah, I appreciate seeing it through um, PJ Harvey's eyes in this song. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. This show is out of the box and the song we're jumping into is called The Last Living Rose by PJ Harvey, chosen by my guest on the show, artist Kate Scarterfield. The Last Living Rose. It was PJ Harvey on FBI Radio 94.5. You are listening to Out of the Box. My name is Mia Hull and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with artist Kate Scarterfield who just ran us through her practice and what it looks like today. I now want to wind back to the very beginning and kind of look at some of the ideas that have informed you as the artist you are now, Kate. When do you think you were first exposed to art growing up? Uh when was I first exposed to art? I think pretty pretty early on. I mean, one of my very kind of formative memories as a teenager is my dad giving me a Minolta SLR camera, like a really old kind of reconditioned manual camera. And I would have been pretty young at the time, I think maybe 13 or 14 and I just was completely obsessed with taking photographs. And, you know, they were, they were photographs of textures. They were portraits of my friends. And I had also kind of a really great um, visual arts teacher in high school who sort of saw me doing this and, like, would unlock the dark room 
doors in the afternoon after school. So I would then spend all of this time in the dark rooms learning how to develop film and then uh, develop photographs. And yeah, I just got completely immersed in photography. Interestingly enough, I don't take photos anymore as part of my practice. Mm. But yeah, that kind of, I guess, way of looking for me was probably really formative. Was, was that like a solitary adventure or were you having people in your life encouraging you in that way? I know your dad got you the camera, but mm. it sounds like you were in the art rooms by yourself. I mean, my memory of it is is being in those dark rooms by myself in the afternoons. But, you know, it's interesting. Art has this kind of reflexivity where you can be deeply connected with people and collaborative in parts of your process and then you could work in solitude in other parts and in a way maybe that that is sort of captured in how I started to take photos and develop photographs the camera became this kind of point of connection with the world whether it was landscape and environment or people and then I would be able to kind of go away from that and have this alone time and also an alone time that also allowed me to work out a process like I had to I you know we had been taught I think some basic developing techniques in school but then it was all of the kind of muddling around that I did by myself after class that enabled Mm. me to yeah learn a really particular what is a really particular material process too. And even at that stage in your life I know you just said landscape and environment was that the kind of story that you were exploring through your practice then as well I mean at that point I don't I definitely didn't have a practice it was that beautiful kind Mm. of fumbly you know I, I liked making things I liked seeing how my ideas could translate visually and into and across different materials and you know I I took some terrible photos and I made some really horrible sculptures I did that for a really long time and you know you still do that occasionally (laughs) but it's you kind of yeah for me it was a kind of a way of being able to view the world and start to interpret it and sort of start to create patterns across things and that that for me is so so much of art making is about thinking for me it is about a kind of thinking through making gesture I like that a lot and I like that You talk about it being a way of viewing the world because I want to talk about what the world you were viewing at that time looked like for you. You did say you grew up on Gadigal country by the water and that you were sailing at a young age. Describe that to me. What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky to grow up on Gadigal country and to sort of spend a lot of time on and around the water as a child you know, swimming and sailing and just kind of at the beach and within the elements. And I had two very close friends in primary school and one of them, their parents were environmental engineers, I think, and they had a research project at the old coal loader site, which is on Camaragal land. Um, in the north, on the north side of the bridge, and they they were living in the caretaker's house on this this coal loader site. So I sort of had this incredible few years with these two friends of mine, where we would like 
be in bushland and down on the kind of foreshore of Sydney Harbour and we would take canoes out and boats out and we would camp on the weekends and we were still kind of within five kilometres of the CBD but we were really kind of completely immersed in this really incredible environment and yeah I think that's something that has has sort of yeah really sort of stayed with me and and the sort of sailing that I did as a kid I sailed very lightweight uh dinghies um which are kind of a one person boat one sail and so much of the way that you have to sail these boats is not by steering them with a tiller or a, a wheel or some kind of implement you have to move your own body weight in response to what the wind and what the waves are doing so it kind of I still think about that now it's like this this feeling that sits somewhere between my like sternum and my belly button that is this awareness of what my body does in relation to the wind and yeah that's it's interesting because that sort of was really formative for me as a child and growing up and then in the way that I then started to make art so much of the way that I would enact different processes and different techniques were about testing and using my body in different ways and then not counting or kind of adding up stitches or numbers or hooks or furls. It was my body would start to know what to do through the repetition of of different acts, whether that's folding and pleating, which is something that I've done a lot of in making sort of kinetic and sculptural textile work or building up different layers and different textures of applique textiles and fabrics. It, it, it also, yeah, it was a much about stretching my body as like getting it to kind of learn these and embody these really tacit acts of making. Mm. That's so fascinating, Kate. Earlier, you know, you talked about using materials that were a little bit reminiscent of sails because you liked the the colour or the fabric. And I'm so interested in the very practice of sailing. You're talking about it teaching you this repetition in the way that you interact with materials. I wonder if it impacted your relationship with the natural environment as, you know, a person who, as you mentioned, kind of has to feel where the wind is Mm. and go with that. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, definitely. I think it teaches you to be in this kind of state of response, which I think is so important. Materials have agency. They have kind of vibrancy to them. Um, And what I love about working with materials in the studio is the kind of the pushback you get from them. You think they're going to do one thing and they actually kind of want to do something else. So you kind of then have to respond and adapt what you're doing based on that. And that's sort of, that's something that's always really excited me when making art. And it's also something that I've experienced when sailing, where you kind of the weather does one thing and you have to respond to it accordingly. You're not in control. I love that, Kate. (laughs) Um, And in the next part of the show, I want to talk about just moving into that space and what it means to take art seriously and start to develop your practice. But first, we're going to sidestep a little bit and play a song by the Beastie Boys. Why did you choose to play this on Out of the Box today? Um, look, this is the first song I thought of with this assignment. 
I absolutely loved the Beastie Boys as a kid and as a teenager. I was obsessed with them. I would sit by the radio with my fingers poised on the record button to record their songs. And it's the first gig I went to um, with my best friend Kate at the Horton Pavilion. And to be honest, it's still a song that I will play very loudly in my car, um, particularly if I'm on a kind of production deadline and it reminds me of like banging into Bunnings and parking in the trade bays in my little Mazda and like getting these looks and I'm like, <laughs> I'm a trade customer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a strong one, but a good one. Chosen by Kate Scarterfield on FBI Radio 94.5. It's the Beastie Boys. This is Sabotage. listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website that song was by the Beastie Boys it was called Sabotage and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box artist Kate Scarterfield. Kate we did kind of talk about the relationship that you were building from a really early age with the natural environment and how that kind of plays into the art you make now but I want to move more into just the art itself and where you were in life when you first started to take art seriously. Do you remember that? Uh, I was, well, I went to art school straight from high school, oddly enough, not thinking I would be an artist. I just was really fascinated and curious and interested in art. And, you know, I, I also that's an incredibly privileged place to come at art from and I was fortunate to have parents who at that point were like, cool, great art, go on, go forth, get a hex debt. Like, and so I started mm-hmm. at um, Kofa. What Were your parents creatives as well? Uh, that's a good question, yeah. My dad was an amateur photographer and a picture framer um, for a number of years and, yeah, sort of was always making and tinkering. He had a little workshop in the old garage section of our house and, you know, is also one of the earliest memories I have of um, sewing. He had this little kind of sale repair bag which had these huge big needles in there and wax twine and I can remember he got a um, an old Singer sewing machine, like an old treadle one at one point, so he could try and do some canvas work himself. And I just remember the smell of burning dust being generated from the sewing machine. So, yeah, I think there was definitely a very visible making um, that was happening in my house growing up. And so they were quite supportive when you went to Kofa then? Yeah, they were really encouraging. They just sort of thought, good, great, we're happy you're going to university and, and, <laughs> and you'll work it out. And, you know, I did. I sort of I started first year thinking I wanted to major in painting because that's what everyone did and then sort of not being that interested in painting at that point. And, and <laughs> so I, picked, I actually picked textiles. And at that point my understanding of textiles and what, they are or could be was sort of very aligned with fashion. 
And I thought, well, maybe what I want to do is go and be a fashion designer. So I sort of did my first year and then I applied at a few other institutions and and got into their fashion degree programs, but then reneged and went, actually, no, that's not, that's not what I want to do. It felt a little bit too tunneled at that point for me, like that, you know, the idea that I would pop out the other end of a, this degree and be a fashion designer suddenly felt too constricted. So I stayed at Kofa and like continued with my major in textiles which you know at the time was really like an applied arts degree so I did weaving and dyeing and felting and printing and I was really not good at any of those things I sort of fumbled my way through it and and I, I tried but I kind of there was a lot of mathematical technical instruction there that I I always struggled with And it was actually, oddly, it was felting that was the first kind of real textile practice I got into. And that, you know, is so sculptural and you have to utilize your body because you're creating these pieces using pressure and heat and water. And so that was kind of my first sort of tacit exploration where I started to learn how I could work with materials. I started to scale those pieces pretty intensely and... What do you mean by that? Like you, you made bigger felt pieces? Yeah. So I guess the thing that I learned with, with a kind of textile training was that you, your experimentation starts really small, like it's, or it's, it's quite contained. Like we did the textile studio then wasn't like the painting studio. Like you didn't have all this space around you and everyone didn't get their own kind of little you know, area to work in. We were taking bags of materials in every week and working in one small room. So it was quite a contained, contained way of starting to learn to make. And I would come home and then I was working in a restaurant at the time in the evening. So I would sort of do my evening shift there and then I would wake up in the morning and I would take over the kitchen table and I would turn that into a giant felting space and I would just make and make and make and slowly over time I increased the scale that I worked and actually that sort of that processual experimentation that learning that back and forth that finding out what the material wants to do it's largely still the kind of the way that I keep making and keep working with materials it's you grow them um, and you grow your knowledge of them step by step as you start to as you start to scale Kate, when you were 19, you moved to Paris. Tell me about that move. I did. I, so I'd done a year, maybe it was a year or two years of my undergraduate fine arts degree. And I, I, you know, I knew I wanted to keep doing it, but I also had not had a break since school and, and I wanted to travel. I think actually I just sort of was like, I want to go and see some of the world and Paris was always a city I was really fascinated by I'd never been there before but it was a city I kind of knew that I wanted to spend a chunk of time in you know for me at that age the way to do that was to try and get work so I ended up working as an au pair for a French family and looking after three kids which you know I was 19 and hadn't really done much more than sort of short nights of babysitting Mm -hmm. at that point so that was, that was a learning curve. And I, you know, I lived with them for, I think eight, around eight months, I think. And, you know, the kids would go to school during the day and I would go into the city and I would go to the museums and, and I spent sort of eight or nine months 
looking at art and looking at material culture and learning, you know, being able, I think, for the first time to see a lot of these incredible pieces of art uh, and design and architecture that I'd only ever seen in books up until that point. I'd never seen a kind of photographic reproduction. So I do remember that being a really formative time for me, a really important time where I would spend lots of time by myself during the day, just looking. Um, and yeah, it's, it's so Paris in this way became the city where I was enabled to be alone. And I actually, for the first time, felt quite empowered to be in solitude. Um, it's also a city that, you know, that, that sort of romantic veneer, I think that that is on the postcards can get wiped away really quickly. So I kind of went through this great process with it where, you know, I saw the sites and then I had a hard time there because it isn't, you know, all Eiffel Towers and fancy bakeries. It, there's a dirt, there's a grit, there's a, you know, there's a deeply complex multicultural community or communities there rather and yeah I kind of came out the other side still loving it so it is a city I've been fortunate to go back to and had a number of residencies in and still the city I feel most comfortable and kind of empowered to be alone in. How do you think that impacts your art making compared to going to art school actually being there and experiencing Mm. art? I think for me that that sort of impacted the way that I started to think about art and what art is and does is because it also afforded me an opportunity to look at people looking at art. Uh, so it wasn't just about the object or the artwork in itself. It was about the kind of context in which it sat. Like, was it in a historical museum? Was it in a contemporary art gallery? Was it outdoors? You know, what was it in a library? And how did that suddenly change the way in which people encounter and perceive what they're what they're looking at I think that or those observations for me were seeded in that first trip I made but then they kind of continued to unfold over numerous residencies I've um, been in New Delhi let's chat about your residencies yeah yeah yeah, because you've done them all around the world why is that important to you you said something really nice before about this idea of like being in the art world and sometimes it does feel like you're in this like very deep soup. And <laughs> so those residencies have also afforded me an opportunity to be out of that um, and to kind of find the rhythm of other places, um, you know, as a guest and as a visitor, uh, but to kind of slow down in order to kind of open my thinking and to get out of the hamster wheel of like, make a show, make another show, do another thing. Um, I learned, I think very early on that being an artist was going to be a way of being and I needed to find what my way of being was and how to sustain that over time so that the work could be rigorous, but it could also be generous that feels really important to me and it's something that I keep trying to um, come back to is it you know making art is a privilege and so if I have the opportunities to make it there what do I need to say or, or what is help you know what are the kind of conversations I want to have and how are they contributing to something that's bigger than me. 
I'm so fascinated by that. And I have so many other questions about what it means to be a full-time practicing artist, but we only have an hour and so much more of your life to get through, Kate. So we're going to jump into a song now. What have you picked? Uh, I would like to play a song by Alice Coltrane. This is the title song of an album I listen to a lot in my studio I really like having this on while I'm in there um, and kind of able to be making little drawings or tiny paintings or just pottering around or thinking. I feel like there are moments for me that often can be few and far in between. The way that I work is, is quite large in scale and it's uh, with numerous collaborators. And so... Yeah, those moments when I can be in the studio and kind of be quite contained and small, yeah, it sort of allows me to to recenter in a way. And and it's it, this is just such a beautiful song, and there's this incredible harp in it. And yeah, this is Journey to Such a Denanda by Alice Coltrane on FBI Radio ninety four point five. You are listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull, and artist Kate Scarterfield. That was Journey to Satchadananda by Alice Coltrane and you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by artist Kate Scarterfield, the chooser of that song. And while we have been talking about Kate as an artist throughout the show, she's also an academic. Kate holds a PhD at the University of Sydney and is the co-director of the Material Ecologies Design Lab at the University of Technology, Sydney. Kate, when did research start to play a role in your life? Uh, For me, research is completely entwined with creative practice. Uh, The two things for me have developed really alongside each other, so they're kind of in constant relation to one another. Uh, While I was studying art, I also started to work in museums and galleries as an educator. I kind of have always had a real drive to look at um, kind of historical contexts and situations around different ideas that I have, I guess, unraveled in a way in the works that I've made. And so I guess that sort of really came out of that um, sort of time I spent in my early 20s in museums and galleries and just looking at things. And uh, yeah, research for me is is also practice-led. It can be studio-based, it can be a material inquiry, uh, but it is also a way of kind of, of allowing uh, for ideas to unfold and for, for kind of contributing to different fields of thought and ways of thinking and acknowledging that there are kind of a multiplicity of different types of knowledges and knowledge systems. So yeah, research is is totally a part of my practice and how I work. Can you give me a few more details into your PhD and what you've researched? Yeah, I mean, that feels like a very long time ago now. I I did my PhD at the University of Sydney. I 
worked with Danny Mella, who's a really incredible um, Australian artist as my supervisor. And I looked very much at kind of the relationship between art and science, but I looked at it from the perspective of uh, the way in which uh, the human anatomy rather and dissection and kind of practices of um, anatomical study were visualised. Um, that's that's like 10 years ago, so hopefully that was a good good react. <laughs> um, but, the, yeah, the, the relationships between um, anatomical visualisation, um, cutting and then art practice. Um, yeah, I haven't talked about that for a long time, but it it is interesting because no, okay. it kind of... <laughs> It sort of seeded me in this way. I worked with a number of museum collections, so collections in Australia but also in Europe, in Scotland, in Italy and in France largely, uh, which, yeah, so it was really sort of a a research project that was grounded in um, collection-based study but then it looked at the relationship between those collections and a number of contemporary art practitioners who were working with collage and kind of practices around uh, material assemblage and methodologies that involve cutting in some way and you know it's interesting because it also I think seeded a lot of things for me in terms of the way that I work with people from other disciplines the way that I work with scientists now you kind of uh, art and science have had this often kind of polarized or you know, it's, they're often positioned as polarised or bin- binary and I actually think that's not the case at all. They're both studio and or lab-based practices where you come to know through acting. And, yeah, that's sort of, I guess, that PhD for me in a way was really formative in terms of developing a practice and it's a practice I take into the work that I now do with biochemists and marine scientists. That's so fascinating Kate no I'm sorry I'm just gushing but I've never heard someone you know draw that relation before oh, wow. about Thank you know, you. Both an artist and a scientist is working in a lab and yeah in a studio and I realized that it's 10 years after you've done your PhD and I apologize no that's okay I was just like what is that about again but it's so it's so fascinating and I guess I'm also fascinated in the relationship between your research and your art making mm. and how those things that, as you mentioned, might be, you know, positioned as a binary work both in your brain. Does one come before the other? How do they make sense in the context of each other? Um, I mean, that's constantly changing, if I'm really honest. Like sometimes the work is the research and other times the research is the work. And then sometimes the work might be a journal article or a book chapter. Um, So it has, it manifests in lots of different ways. I guess the one thing I've really learned in the last few years is to allow my creative practice and my process to be at the centre. And then it will have these different types of manifestations. It might be as an object in an exhibition, but it also might be in you know, a kind of uh, collaborative research project that then produces, you know, an article that argues for an element of new knowledge in some way. So it might be a piece of creative writing. It, it can take lots of these different forms and there's not one, I'm not wedded to one of them. And it needs to take different forms to me because the work 
and the practice it has this kind of dynamicism that means that I can I can speak to and contribute in those different spaces. Kate, you've chosen a Mariah Carey <laughs> song to play. <laughs> Let's just jump into that. Why, why did you pick yeah, it? Yeah, look, on the note of academia, um, no, <laughs> that's, not, that's not at all why those two things are related, but maybe they should be. Look, I picked, I picked Fantasy by Mariah Carey because for me it is just such an incredible quintessential piece of pop music. She's extraordinary. It's also probably emblematic for me of, you know, accepting pop music in my life and loving it. I think as a teenager, I kind of, you know, you could, it was all grunge. It was all like blokes in garages, in big bands and, you know, these kind of incredible women largely that were making these banger pop tracks. It wasn't cool to like them. And so I guess... I came late in life to Mariah Carey. I'm so glad I'm here. And this is, yeah, just a brilliant song. It's Fantasy by Mariah Carey on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Kate Scarterfield, artist and, as we've just learned, academic, and the chooser of that song. It was Fantasy by Mariah Carey. Kate, we've spoken in depth about your artistic practice and the ideas that inform your art and what your art looks like. And you do have some exhibitions coming up that people can see that for themselves. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, absolutely. I've got um, I've got work in a couple of exhibitions at the moment. Uh, there is a fantastic exhibition of contemporary textile work at UNSW Galleries, uh, which has been curated by um, Karen Hall and Catherine Woolley, uh, called Pliable Planes. Um, so I have a, a two-channel video work in that exhibition called You Don't Need Me to Tell You. And has a really beautiful sound score by Lawrence Pike, uh, who's responded to the video and, yeah, created this really kind of beautiful textural composition that draws out some of the things going on in the imagery. The work for me has been kind of a long time coming. It's a work I've wanted to make for a really long time. And when Catherine and uh, Karen came to me with the idea for the exhibition and sort of said, is there something you know, would you think about making a new work? Is there something you would want to do? And I was like, I want to make a video. And they said, great, which is fantastic because when you when you talk about textiles, the immediate kind of thing I think that comes to mind is something that is tacit, something that is kind of tissue and physical. And, um, yeah, I, I, I knew immediately that I wanted to make this work. And this work for me started back in 2019, um, during a residency that I did at Bundanon Trust uh, on the south coast of New South Wales. And I was making these, um, what I was calling wind instruments. So they were old um, spinnakers and sails and parachutes that I'd cut up and spliced together and they'd become these big kind of amorphous 
textile forms and what I wanted to do at that point was I wanted to sort of I was thinking a lot about the wind and the invisibility of the wind and trying to kind of make material uh, the weather or the changing weather conditions. And so I spent three weeks in in and around the Shoalhaven, largely on Wadi Wadi land, uh, so near Kayama and Jeringong. And I was with Robin Herefield. Robin is also an artist and he's a photographer who I've worked with for a number of years and we just sort of spent all of this time finding different sites and taking these textiles out. And, you know, I, I kind of remember saying to him at the time, I ha- this, this is actually all about me making mistakes. I actually just need to start to see what these things do in these different sited environments. And then I sort of start to need to change and alter them accordingly. So we would go out and we would sort of allow them to fill and billow with wind and at times I would be completely overpowered uh, and kind of have to let them go and chase after them Uh, and then we would take them home in the evenings and I would sit in the studio on the floor on my little sewing machine and and make changes to them depending on what I had kind of learnt that day and yeah so we'd done we'd done this kind of wind instrument study and and I knew at that time that it was something that felt really important to me to capture in motion. And what I had been doing, or spending a lot of time researching, were um, different systems of signal and semaphore. So I'd been looking and working with collection material in the Maritime Museum's collection and in the Powerhouse Museum's collection and thinking about the different ways we communicate and share information across distance. So the work that evolved from that and that's in Pliable Plains, is this kind of two-channel video where there's a call and response happening across two different sites between two different instruments. And I'm, I'm activating those instruments in the, in the video. And it's for me, it's not a performance as much as it's this kind of gesture of communication or gesture of signal. And it is also very much about trying to capture what those particular environmental conditions were on that day at that time. I didn't have any control over that. So, you know, over the shoot, it presented all sorts of kind of challenges. Um, but no, I, I kind of think that was also part of it as well, was not, again, not having kind of control over the outcome, uh, but allowing for those wind instruments to kind of give shape to the wind and to try and visually amplify what is happening with the weather conditions as a way of trying to talk about, you know, the the changing weather that we're experiencing as a result of climate change. Kate, that's amazing how much thought and time has gone into this piece, Pliable Plains, Expanded Textiles and Fibre Practices. It will be showing at UNSW Galleries from now through until July 17 this year. I'll pop all the details of that one up on the program's page on fbiradio.com. So if you did want to head along, that's where you'll find everything you need. Kate, what does the future hold for you? Uh... Lots of things, I hope. I, I'm ready for a little rest, to be honest. Um, mm. I, I really have, and I'm excited by some writing that I'm going to do over the next few months. Uh, there's some plans for some exhibitions uh, in 2023 and 2024 that are starting to come together. But yeah, I know myself when I come off the back of 
big projects and I've had a couple in quick succession recently and it's fantastic and amazing but I also know that what I need to do as as an artist and as a practitioner is kind of go small for a while so it might sound really boring but like I really try and sleep for eight to nine hours a night and I eat vegetables and I do gentle stretching and (laughs) just kind of build up um yeah sort of slowly come back into my body and working at a pace that's um kind of sustainable and um yeah just re yeah realigning and re sort of centering myself and for me that's kind of getting small again so it's kind of going back into the studio and tinkering and pottering and and not necessarily having a kind of outcome focus um and having the time to reflect on the work that's that's just been made too so yeah I'm looking I'm looking forward to that and then we'll take off again after yeah well, all the best with going small and I will keep an eye out on your upcoming exhibitions in 2023 and 2024. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box. It was a real joy getting to learn about you, Kate. Oh, Mia, thank you. It was such a pleasure and thank you for your questions. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's my job. Um, what song would you like to end on today? Oh, okay. I think uh, I'd like to end with an instrumental song by the Menahan Street Band. It's called Make the Road by Walking. It's a song that just every time I listen to, I want to move my body, I want to dance, I want to walk, I want to run. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. Incredible. We'll jump into it right now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. It's called Make the Road by Walking by the Menahan Street Band, chosen by artist Kate Scarterfield, my guest on Out of the Box today. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. You can listen back to this episode if you like. It'll be up on the podcast or on the programs page on fbiradio.com. And also on the programs page, I'll put the track list and all of the details to Kate's upcoming exhibition. I want to give a huge shout out to producer Tash for doing all of the research for this episode and do stay tuned. Lunch up next. FBI. FBI.